Exodus, Exodus 23 and verse number 9. A number of years ago, I was invited to preach in uh, Zwolle in Holland and uh, had to do some ministry there in that uh, mother church. And while I was there, another pastor invited me to come and preach it. His name was Pastor Peter Mayur, and he was in a place called Groningen there in the Netherlands. And uh, uh, one of the evenings, we went back to his house for a little bit of fellowship after the service. Uh, and uh, we're sitting in the lounge room on his lounge, and he sort of started the conversation by asking me, what is the best piece of marriage advice I'd ever received? Now, I said, I have a long list of uh, advice I've received over the years, uh, uh, some from my pastor, some from uh, another source. But uh, I said, uh, well, what's, uh, what, why? Why are you saying that? And he said, well, I, the best piece of marriage advice I ever got uh, he says, well, we bought this couch. We're sitting on the couch. Yeah? And he says, when we got it at home, in my mind, the best place for the couch to be was in the middle of the room, facing the window, so we could see outside the window a little bit of garden, a little bit of scenery. Yeah? But my wife wanted it under the window, looking back into the middle of the room so that people could fellowship and be that way. And we got into a real conflict over this. He said, that I took it to my pastor, absolutely convinced that I was right and I'm, a, I'm the man of the house and it should be, uh, you know, where I said it should be, out the, looking out the window. Uh, and he said, the best piece of advice my pastor gave me was, he said, uh, Peter, why are you fighting over this? Just put it where your wife wants it and walked off. Now, I'm not sure whether that's a good advice for every piece of marriage conflict before you think that's a, uh, that's a broad-based uh, piece of advice. Uh, but all of us could think to ourselves, not just in the context of marriage, all of us could ask ourselves, what is the best piece of advice we've ever been given? You may have a top three, a top five pieces of advice, but I want to give you a contender tonight. And the contender happens to be our text where Moses writes and he says these words to the children of Israel as a piece of advice, never forget where you came from. So I'm going to preach on a sermon called The Best Advice Ever Given. And I believe tonight that God is going to help us as Christians, as believers, as sojourners, as strangers, as people heading towards the promised land. God can help us. Exodus 23. And verse number nine, the Bible says also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Amen. Three aspects of the best advice ever given. Number one is never forget where you've come from. Can you say amen? And uh, one of the miracles, I think, one of the greatest miracles of life, I've shared this before, is families that have more than one child, or should I say mothers that have more than one child, and somehow they forget the pain of the first childbirth when they think to themselves, I'll never have another child. And in a very short period of time, they have seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths, and the numbers go on. Can anybody say, Pastor Scott McLean? What's true of childbirth the danger is what's true of childbirth and the pain of the past is also true of our minds and the pain of the sin 
of the past. And if we're not careful, we forget where we came from. And if we forget where God has dragged us from, then the danger is you begin to drift back to something you should have left behind forever. Can you say amen? We have romantic ideals about our past. The longer we're saved, if we're not careful, we think almost romantically about our upbringing and our life before salvation, and we only remember the good. You know, when people get saved, it's a trip to be around new converts. Sometimes they fall into the trap of, dare I say, exaggerating how bad they were. It's like the four Yorkshiremen sitting around describing how bad their past was. And then they transition from that to they're a bit embarrassed about their past. And they begin to minimize how bad they were. And they begin to lose sight of the pain and the loneliness and the hopelessness and the fear that drove them to salvation. And then the next stage is they're attracted to their past because they've really forgotten where it is that they've come from. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter is addressing people who had gotten saved, had started with God living the genuine born-again Pentecostal Christian life, and then they'd gone back. And Peter reminds them of a proverb. He says, these proverbs have come true for these people. A dog goes back to his vomit and a pig that has been washed goes back to roll again in the sewage. Now these are deliberate words chosen by the Holy Spirit to describe all of our past, no matter where you've come from. It says your past, in the Greek it means vomit. In the Greek it means sewage. In the Aussie it's chunder. Other parts of the world, it's puke. Whatever, however you want to describe it, the Holy Ghost says that when you left your past behind, it, it was like leaving vomit and sewage behind. And he's saying, who in their right mind would ever want to go back to that? We have romantic ideals, not just of the past, but of the present. And we think that somehow our moving in the Christian life uh, has somehow done been more to do with us, and we forget about the power of conversion. We forget about the power of the friends we've made along the way. Yeah? We forget of the contributions that the church and others have made in our lives. And it's like we get so far into the journey towards the promised land. And it's like, thank you very much. You want to unhitch yourself from all that God has done in your life. And you want to strike out on your own without any acknowledgement of Christ who brought you there. Romantic ideals of the past. Romantic ideals of the present, and then there's romantic ideals about progress. So the danger is as time goes by is that we kind of level out into what we might call Christianity light. Anybody recognize Christianity light? And that is that there are some people that are, you know, they're uh, progressing on with God, uh, but we've uh, retreated into Christianity light. We're no longer as dedicated uh, as perhaps we want, once were uh, when we left our sin behind. Uh, we think we're doing okay because we're not back in the vomit uh, and back in the sewage, uh, but we're living a worldly, carnal, selfish, fleshly life uh, and think that's okay because uh, at least I'm not as bad as some. The Bible says very, very clearly that if you are not constantly 
striving and cultivating the new man in Christ that the old man is just beneath the surface. Has anybody had a, a run-in with their old man? And it's like, I've been saved three years, I've been saved five years, I've been saved 20 years, and yet the old man is, you realize, you know what, if I don't keep pressing forward, the old man is following very, very close behind. In Ephesians 4, 23, Paul says, be constantly renewed in the spirit of your mind. Keep putting on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. There are several ways that we have to keep it real when it comes to our past and where we are in Christ. Number one is, I want to put it on the line tonight, Satan is always wanting to make a comeback in your life. There's no amount of years of conversion. There's no amount of ministry. There's no amount of elevation. There's no, even if you're a pastor and have been a pastor for 5, 10, 15, 20 or more years, uh, Satan is always trying to make a comeback in your life. Jesus Christ himself told the story about a man who was demon-possessed. The demons went out of that man, and he had a sense of freedom and liberty. He's enjoying the Christian life. He's left certain things behind, but he has not progressed on as a new man in Christ. And the Bible says the devil makes a comeback. He comes back to that man's house. He comes back to that man's life, and a life he described as his house and his life. And the Bible says this new man in Christ has not been filling his life constantly pursuing the things of God, the devil makes a comeback. And the last out of that man was seven times worse than the first. Simple truth. Good piece of advice. Uh, don't forget where you come from. Don't forget where it was that Christ dragged you from. Uh, and let that inspire you to guard your spiritual house. A man called Dias Costa, 49 years of age, was home asleep in Cordoba, Argentina when four armed men broke in and threatened him. And uh, Diaz Costa, I don't know if you heard my sermon or not, but uh, anyway, he took a samurai sword off the wall uh, and began to defend his house. The four men were forced to flee in a getaway car. They drove straight to the hospital uh, where they were placed in intensive care to stitch up the wounds uh, that had been put on them uh, by Mr. D.S. Costa. Now, I'm not recommending, you know, I'm not that, you know, you put that in, in its place, uh, but I'm talking about you defending your spiritual house by recognizing a good piece of advice. Uh, never forget where you've come from. There's a second piece of advice wound up in our text, and that's never lose sight of where you're going. So the book of Exodus uh, is, a, uh, is a historical record uh, of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. But it's not just them exodusing out of Egypt, uh, but they're coming out of bondage, uh, but they're going into a fresh destination. God's plan for their life uh, was not just released from Egypt. Uh, God's plan for their life uh, was about moving into a, a fresh destination, or, or God brings us out uh, in order to take us in. In our text, he's referring to these children of Israel as strangers. That Hebrew word means sojourner or traveler 
or somebody passing through. And what he's saying is that this life is not your life, but we are all strangers. We're sojourners. We're travelers. We can never settle down in this place and really feel comfortable. It's crucial we keep understanding that God is taking us somewhere. If you're not careful, Christianity comes just simply not doing certain things, and that gets really, really old. Well, Christians, we can't go to the movies, and we can't drink, and we can't take drugs, and we can't do, you know, you know we just, we, what do you, what's the next thing that they're going to come up we can't do anymore? And in our minds, it's just simply not doing certain things, and to be sure, let's be clear, there are certain things that Christians are ought not to do, uh, but it's not about just coming out. It's not about just not doing things. It's not even about who you are right now. It's who you can become in Christ. I remember one of the things that captured my attention, and to be honest with you, captured my heart in the early days of conversion uh, was the idea of discipleship uh, is it's not just who I am right now, but what I can become in Christ. Because I knew that the person that God had dragged out of the vomit, uh, literally, uh, and the sewage, literally, of my past life, uh, that I wasn't just that person, stagnant, stationary, but I was a sojourner. I was a traveler that God was taking me somewhere, and I was inspired by the kind of person the Bible says I could become, and that's true of all of us. God's taking you somewhere, and you've got to be inspired about the idea the best for your life is always yet to come. Pastor Wayman Mitchell has been enjoying traveling the world uh, in recent years, and I don't know how long he's been doing this, but I'd say for several decades, he's been traveling internationally with only carry-on luggage. Uh, he's not a, not a large man, that's probably helpful. But he only has carry-on luggage. Conferences, suits, shirts, all the rest of whatever he has to carry with him, carry-on luggage because he hasn't got time to hang around waiting for his luggage every airport that he travels through. When uh, his great-grandson-in-law, Stephen Charcher, began to travel with him, one of the first lessons he had to learn was that you have to travel light. You have to find a way, Stephen, to get all of the stuff you want for a week or a week and a half of conferences and services and revivals in carry-on baggage because we have no time to waste. And what a perfect truth for Christianity. He said, I've got something to accomplish. I've got things I've got to do. I don't want to be tied down by things here in the present because I'm going somewhere. If you don't Focus your life on what it is that God says you can become and what it is that God says you can have. There's a number of things we're prone to. Number one is we lose touch with reality. This is the children of Israel. Because of their lack of faith to press on into the promised land, their minds began to drift back and they lose touch with reality. And all they remember is the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. I mean, how do, you, how do you lose sight of all of the stuff they live with as a nation for 400 years of hard labor, bondage, and slavery? And yet in your mind, all you can think about is they had great pizza. They really had some really nice spicy food back there. And man, I miss it. The way they describe uh, Egypt, it sounds like Club Med. 
Sounds like some kind of an Asian uh, destiny, Asian holiday in some seven-star resort. Uh, if you're not pressing on, your mind drifts back without reality about where you've come from and what God is doing. The second thing that happens is you begin to complain. Now, I know that no, not a single person that I know of in our congregation ever complains. You should have all just said, just hung your heads and said, oh, me, or at least acknowledge that I said that. And you at home, you can do the same thing. But if you're not careful, you don't begin to press on, you know what, all of this is worthwhile because God is taking me somewhere. God's doing something in my life. I'm going somewhere with this. If you, don't, if you lose sight of where God is taking you, you begin to complain. You have all the wrong reference points. The third thing is you forget the deliverer. You forget the wonderful Savior and Deliverer that is Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. And one of the ideas of remembering God and remembering Jesus Christ is worship is meant to instill in us a sense of obligation. A sense of if Jesus Christ died for me, is it a, is it a big thing for me to live for Him? If he paid such a price that I could be saved, if he has brought me out in order to take me somewhere, then one day take me into heaven, uh, that I ought to cultivate not a legalistic sense of obligation, but a sense of reverence and appreciation for all that God has done for my life. Uh, and the fourth thing we forget uh, is a sense of mission. In our text here, as Moses is bringing some good advice to the children of Israel, he says, don't forget about the stranger he said, don't forget those people that you come across in your journeys and your travels. He says, because you have been the beneficiaries of somebody else's benevolence and someone else's uh, sacrifice and somebody else's service, uh, because you have received that, he's giving them advice. He says, you ought to be giving that same benefit to somebody else. Uh, don't forget that you ought to serve other people uh, in the journey, way back in the day, <clears throat> about 19, uh, or oh, probably 1986, 1985, 6, somewhere in that realm, I was teaching a year nine class back in Bunbury, and myself and the other teacher there, the, another male teacher there, we used to take the year nine boys and girls on a 55-kilometer, five-day trek through the forests of southwest, Western Australia. And uh, you would never do it today, and you'd never get away with it today, the level of OH&S that was not present uh, in that type of uh, camp in those, those days. But anyway, we tell these year nine students that we're going to start, we took two buses, we drove them into the bush 55 kilometers apart uh, he was going to walk it to my bus. I was going to walk to his bus. We swapped over keys in the middle back near the bush somewhere. And then we, we, we drove back home again. We told these year nines, listen, word of advice, the mission is not how good you look, but that you successfully get from point A to point B. That's good doctrine. Can you say amen? So he said to them, everything that you want for the week, you have to carry in your own backpack, there's no other. Once we leave the bus, once you start on that journey, there is no going back. There's no one coming to get you. We're in deep bush. 
No mobile phones back in those days. No walkie-talkies. We're on our own. Complete chaos. That's another sermon. But uh, you carry everything. And so we say, listen, just bring, you know, one pair of jeans for the week. Couple of changes of underwear. Girls, it's not about how good you look. Don't bring your hair straighteners. Don't bring your hair dryers. Don't bring the... Yes, Mr. Walsh, no problems. But on the Monday morning when they, their four-wheel drives roll up to let their little kids go off to uh, uh, this 55-kilometer trek, uh, I couldn't believe the size of the backpacks these kids dragged out of their cars. I'm talking some of these kids had to drag them backwards across the car park from the car to the bus. They've got to carry that 55 kilometers, and 14 of those kilometers was in a canoe they had to paddle. And we say, listen, you got this all wrong. I'm talking about little year nine girls whose legs are buckling as they're trying to get towards the bus with their backpack. Listen, darling, get, put it on the floor. Get some stuff out of there. And they might do some cursory things and pull out a, a pillow and, you know, Duna comes out and, you know, and a cuddly bear this, this size, you know, and all this kind of stuff, you know. But so we kind of whittle it down and then we drive the, we drive the bus and then we walk one day. And by the end of that first day, I mean, they are, they're trying to chuck stuff in the bush. They're trying to hide things under rocks. And uh, we always had a parent in a four-wheel drive meet us there. We pass out black plastic bags uh, and the stuff they took out. Once they knew it's a journey. Once they knew this is not about how we look. It's all about survival. I've just got to get to the other side. Uh, all of a sudden, their whole perspective changes. Uh, and that ought to be true of Christians. Can you say Amen. Don't forget where you're going. I close one final thought, then we'll pray. And that's never take for granted the people that you travel with. Don't forget where you come from. Don't forget where God's taking you and never take for granted the people that you travel with. As I was writing this recently, I, my mind drifted back to a lady in our church in a Bunbury, she probably got saved in about, she got saved in, in another church and married a young man in our church. And uh, we were there, we were couples together. And I became the pastor and I pastored them for a number of years and other pastors pastored them. And, uh, but this girl, I mean, she had so many tremendous talents, very talented. Uh, she was just very just very uh, skillful, lots of things. If you gave her any kind of task to do, uh, uh, she approached that with like a military dedication and a military-style precision uh, and just a very, very, you know, a very good girl, but she just simply refused to get along with people. It was one of the most heartbreaking things, I guess, I've seen in ministry uh, is somebody who had all of these talents, loved God, no question that she was saved or living for God or born again, but just simply refused to get along with people. And, uh, you know, difficulties under her first pastor, then I was her pastor for a period of time, some challenges there, uh, and subsequent pastors. Uh, I mean, it didn't matter who the pastor was. They were never right. They could never, you know, nothing was complaints and so forth uh, until eventually a number of pastors down the road uh, they just got sick of it. 
asked her to leave. I don't know where she's gone now. I don't know if she's married her. There's too, too much water under the bridge. Uh, but I thought to myself, here's a girl, and in reality, she's traveling alone. She has a difficult relationship with her husband and her family. She is unable, unable or unwilling to cultivate any kind of sympathetic, empathetic relationship with other women in the church. Never able to just somehow, you know, uh, humble herself and flow with the program and be a part of, of a unified cause and mission and goal. Uh, and just somehow she's traveling alone. And I want to challenge you tonight. You're never going to make it long term if you travel alone. Amen. Good preaching. You're never going to make it. Uh, there are no such things uh, as solo Christians, uh, successful, long-term, on their own, by themselves, solo Christian. Every Christian that makes it long-term has learned to travel with people uh, and cultivate community. Christianity of its essence, and I was thinking about this today, uh, where the Bible says, love God and love your neighbor. Uh, he's saying there is a social element uh, to Christianity uh, that God puts us uh, in community. Uh, and one of the beauties of a local church uh, is God puts us with people you would never automatically spend time with. Is that correct? Am I, saying, am I, preaching, the, am I preaching the gospel tonight? is that God puts the members in the body as it pleases Him and not so it pleases you. As a matter of fact, I believe that God deliberately puts a, an eclectic mix of people in every local congregation and challenge us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen. One man said that the church is like breakfast cereal, fruits, flakes, and a few nuts sprinkled through. Well, don't you think that's true of your local church here in Parramatta? That's, that's up to you to decide. But uh, God says, I put the members in the body as it pleases me. And you, us, we have to learn just to get along and travel together as people in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, we intrinsically understand there's something wrong with the priest and the Levite uh, and something right with the Good Samaritan. The good, not the good Samaritan. We intrinsically know these guys are bad. They've passed by the Good Samaritan. He stopped and helped him. But in reality, in our heart of hearts, in our fleshly Christianity light, we're more like the priest and the Levite and less like the Samaritan. Amen. Good preaching. I never like using uh, my own personal illustration. This was too good to, uh, to pass up. Just uh, uh, the other Sunday, Ann and I were coming along to church, <clears throat> and uh, we traveled along Hammers Road, and uh, we're coming up to the roundabout, and there's a guy uh, on the side of the road standing in front of his car, and he's got a pair of jumper leads. It's Sunday morning. It's about 10 past nine. I've got a teach the Sunday school at 9.30, and so I see him there, and I, you know, I know how it feels, mate, I said, and I'm going to, I'm just, I'm, I'm heading off to church, and Ann goes, are you going to stop and help him? Sure. So I go around the roundabout, and he's walked up the driveway, so, I said, okay. So I drove down there and I honked the horn and I said, you, you're going to start your car? He, he turned, yeah, he comes, come, comes back, you know. And I pulled the car in and 
He's a very nice guy, and he's just standing. He said, the car doesn't start. He's got to get somewhere in a hurry, you know. And uh, I remember saying to him, and I, I'm there, and I really am pressed for time, and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, get the thing done quickly, and his car wouldn't start. He said, I'd like to leave it about five minutes before he's trying to start. I said, okay, whatever you think is going to be best, you know. And then it just dropped on me. He was saying, I, I really appreciate you taking time to stop. Many people drove by. And then it just dropped on me. God just put it in my heart. Uh, he says, you have stood by the front of your car, Rob, with jumper legs looking for a start. And I said to the guy, I said, you know what? I said, I had to stop. because of, No, but I had to stop because uh, uh, I remember I said twice, standing in the McDonald's car park at the airport, I've gone to pick somebody up. Uh, I've got parked in the car park at McDonald's. Uh, and uh, the flight's in, the flight's landed. Okay, I'm going to go pick them up, and my car won't start. Uh, and I said, I remember being in McDonald's car park at the airport, batteries flat, no jumper leads, looking for jumper leads and somebody to start the car. I know exactly how you feel. Uh, and the Bible says that's how you're to think about everybody else that passes your life. In our text, Moses says, as we bring this to a close, uh, he says, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you remember what it felt like to be left out and overlooked. And he's saying that you and I, as we travel along, we ought to not take for granted the people you travel with. I wonder if there are people in your life that to some degree to you are strangers, and just like, you know, the lepers and the Samaritans in the Bible, uh, that somehow to you they are second-class citizens. That somehow you see yourself as superior. Maybe you've been saved longer. Maybe the blessing of God upon your life is more materially obvious than other people. But here Moses is saying, listen, don't ever... See yourself as so superior that you look down on anybody that God has chosen to travel with you. No doubt the children of Israel, they're an impressive sight. They're marching through. They're heading to the promised land. Lots of people would drift along and say, we want to be a part of this. We want to be a part of what you're doing. And Moses is saying, listen, don't ever, don't ever, don't ever despise those kinds of people. They might not even be Israelites. They might not even be children of Israel, but they are strangers. And you know what that felt like when you were in Egypt. And you were an outcast, and you were a stranger, and you were a slave, and you had no rights. He says, make sure you treat these people well. Uh, amen. I wonder tonight, as I bring this to a close, if there's anybody in your circle of Friends, maybe anybody in your local church, a little larger church perhaps, but uh, anybody that you look down upon, anybody that somehow, maybe even to the point of despise them. The Shema Israel, love your neighbor as yourself. And what they're saying is, how would you feel if somebody in your position despise you. God loves them tonight. Can you say amen? Anybody who's saved, anybody who's unsaved, God loves them.
one of the reasons why we witness is because we never forget the stranger. We remember ourselves. Somebody reached out and gave us a flyer. Somebody took time to give us a track. Somebody took time to pray for us. Somebody took time to pray with us at an altar. Somebody took time to cultivate Christianity in our lives. So we're, we're now becoming all that God wants us to be. And Moses, God is saying, never forget where you've come from. And now that you have the truth of the gospel, make sure you share that with other people. Don't forget to cultivate friendships with those people that you travel with. Ravi Zacharias, I've been reading a little bit about him recently. He's passed away, having served the Lord since he was 17 years of age. And I did see a little clip as I bring this to a close. He talked about being saved as a 17-year-old. He tells the story to some degree as an altar call in one of the services. It's a very large church he's preaching. It might be Robert Morris's church. I couldn't really tell. But he talks about being in a Delhi hospital, 17 years of age, many, many years ago. And I don't even have any reference points for what it might be like in a Delhi hospital, uh, you know, 50 or so years ago, 60 years ago. He talks about having been so depressed and so, uh, uh, so hopeless and just gave up on life uh, that he took a, some kind of a, of a poison and drank poison to try and kill himself. And he ended up in this hospital uh, after this suicide attempt. And he says it wasn't until he stopped and was there in the hospital uh, in ICU uh, Uh, They're trying to rescue him from this suicide attempt uh, that he said that he felt that God at that point spoke to him and said to him, I've been chasing you. I've been chasing you. And now that you've stopped, I want to come into your life. I want to change you, give you a life. And he references it and with tears in his eyes, the revelation that God had been chasing him. While he was running from God and running here and there and all this stuff he was doing, uh, he says, God was chasing me. Uh, and he found me there, 17-year-old, got saved, lived for God. Uh, and he says, every time I go back to India, he says, I always take time to try and go to Delhi. No matter what my schedule is, I said, I'll hire a taxi by myself. Uh, and I go and sit outside that Delhi hospital. And I say to myself and I say to God, God, this is where it all began. No matter what you've done in my life, no matter what kind of recognition or what kind of ministry, in reality, I am just a 17-year-old suicide victim saved by grace because you chased me and you found me. He said, every time I go back, I want to remember where I've come from, what God's done in my life. And he turns around and says, you know what? If you'll stop long enough, God wants to catch you as well and save you as well. Let's bow heads. He's going to close in a word of prayer.